You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message.
to make a decision about God is to be disordered to not decision, right? Um, and, and here's what I want to say to you while you're trying to get from the non-decision decision works for a while. Now it may be time to do things that you don't want to do first or the things that you just need to stop doing or maybe move on. And as you make that choice, I want you to do this. While each of you now get nearly seven minutes in person, we've got the one thing here to know the importance of life. We've had people who have not made it keep off life, and we have made it go home and they make it. And we have maintained our commitment to mindfulness and will maintain our commitment to mindfulness until the science tells us otherwise. And we have a health team that meets, and that health team is made up of leaders of mindfulness as well as medical professionals. And the medical professionals who help us make our decisions are also coming in person to help us on this. So I feel comfortable about the decisions that we're making in this time. And uh, this medical professional is telling us that we're doing everything we can, obviously we are, to keep everybody safe. While, while, while we promote what we believe is a core value, a necessary value in the world, and that is the worship the worship of God, the disciples of Jesus. So, um, so you're, you're, as you're making those decisions, I, 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 I kind of really am pressing a little bit here and saying to you, the decisions that you may have done, you may have gotten so used to those choices that you're not rethinking things that you would have now begun to consider and now reconsider. You know, stress takes its toll with all takes its toll on how we make choices, and you know, some we've seen people you know burn out the house <laughs> when they let stress make them because they're still in. Um, and we would say right now we can hardly count the ways anymore that stress has taken its toll. We have all carried our share of stress in the last year, but but here in the U.S., even on our worst days, for most of us, our stress tends to show up either as internal anger or uh, maybe it's chronic anxiety. Um, we might talk about our inability to sleep well, and goodness, I bet that the sleep aid market is loving it some days. Um, meanwhile, I, I want to say this, the real, and I pun intended, but really, seriously, the real silver story in this pandemic, uh, in, the, in the midst of COVID and political unrest and national unrest, has been the greatly intensified global persecution of Christians. And that's why I, I personally feel the need to be bold about uh, people, um, about making a conscious decision when you're following of Jesus. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Yeah. Because the global persecution of Christians, listen, this is uh, Raymond Ibrahim. He's a widely published and respected researcher. He's recently published another book about the interface between Muslims and Christians, and he's written a recent article um, called A Global Calamity, 340 Million Christians Persecuted. And he focuses on the intensified persecution of Christians inside the pandemic, much of it an overflow of a stressed-out world. Ibrahim says that between 2018 and 2021, I mean, January 2021, so in the last two years, 
the persecution of Christians has risen by 60%. That's huge. That's huge. Think of it this way. What if your income increased by 60%? That might help you get a you know, perspective. 60% increase is huge. And a lot of that increase is directly related to the pandemic. According to the Open Doors Watch list, 80% of Indian Christians helped by Open Doors say they were passed over for food distribution strictly because they were Christians. So they are showing up at food distribution sites, refusing to deny their faith in Jesus, and they're being passed over for food because of it. China has greatly increased its monitoring of Christians during the pandemic. Same thing in Turkey, where every citizen's religious affiliation is recorded on a chip, which makes it very easy to discriminate against Christians. And it gets worse. Last year, last year, more Christians were murdered for their faith in Nigeria than in any other country. And Nigeria is not number one on the World Watch persecution list. It's number seven. But last year, more, persecu- uh, more Christians in Nigeria were killed than in any other country. That's mostly Muslim on Christian violence. A friend there tells me he wakes up every, uh, a friend who lives in Nigeria tells me he wakes up every day and he feels about it. Which brings us right into the world of John the Baptist. This month we've been studying John's life and message uh, because of a word that I've heard um, that was for me personally, but also I feel for our community on, on prepar- the word was preparation, prepare. We need to, we need to be prepared for lots of things. Um, so we've been using John's uh, message, his, his ministry, and in fact his whole life was a call to spiritual preparation. His job, his voice, his call was to make the world ready for the next great move of God. John's whole life was designed to point to Jesus. In fact, John's whole life was so thoroughly oriented toward Jesus that when the followers of Jesus began to go out preaching repentance and driving out demons and healing people, the first thought most people had was, this must be John the Baptist. This looks like his work. I mean, that's how thoroughly John's life was immersed in and pointed to kingdom things. The problem with that theory was that John was dead. I mean, imagine your life so thoroughly marked by casting out demons, curing diseases, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and healing the sick, that people thought it was you even after you died. His death was high drama, not something nobody knew about. The ultimate good versus evil storyline, complete with romance and vengeance and all because John would not stay quiet about the, the character of Herod. Herod had an affair with his brother's wife, and John was prepared to die, and his death became a sign of what it means to follow Jesus, not into death, but into life. So, let's jump in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. The story starts in uh, verse 14, but I'm not actually going to read the story to you so much as tell it, but you can follow along in your Bible. The story begins, verse 14 begins with these two words, King Herod, King Herod. It's kind of funny. Thank you, Anne, for laughing, because that is sort of, Mark has a great sense of humor. The same, this is the same guy. King Herod is the same guy referred to in the Bible as Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. Here, King Herod. When you see any of these names in the story of Jesus, it's the same guy. 
think, think governor, a minor political figure. And so Mark, because he has a sense of humor, it makes me wonder if he's making fun here when he calls Herod a king, King Herod, wink, wink. Because that was the thing King, that, that Herod wanted most. He just wanted to be in charge of the whole world. And he never got there. This was a mean guy. In addition to killing John the Baptist, Herod participated in the condemnation and murder of Jesus. He killed James, the brother of John. He persecuted the early church. His name gets mentioned in the book of Acts. And his personal story is like some kind of reality show drama. What had happened was... Herod had married his brother's wife. Evidently, they'd had an affair. Seems like maybe Herod got divorced, and then they got married, but it's hard to figure out what happened when and who was still married to whom. But suffice it to say, by Jewish standards, this, none of this was kosher. John was vocally opposed to this setup. Here was Herod. He was the ruler of a Jewish province, and he was not only immoral but power-hungry. He had taken the opportunity of ruling this province to start the rebuild of the temple, hoping that maybe he could use that to get the favor and maybe even the worship of Jewish people. Herod was covertly vying for God's place in the Jewish heart, and John would have none of it. So John made a deal of Herod's marriage to his brother's wife, maybe, maybe to get people to think about what a real God would actually do. I don't think a real God marries his brother's wife. You've got to love John for that courageous stand, which is what John did. He called people to prepare their lives for the presence of God by repenting of their sin. John's whole life was designed to point to Jesus. And Herod's whole life was designed to point to Herod. That's the contrast that's been set up for us. The irony is that Herod actually liked John, thought of him as a morally and spiritually good man who deserved respect, sort of like a spiritual Jiminy Cricket. And and John evidently had enough of a relationship with Herod that he could tell him straight up, you ought not be married to your brother's wife. It's funny that you have to say that out loud, but you had to say it in Leviticus, and you have to say it in the New Testament, and you have to say it today. Put Herod in a strange place. It also exposed his weakness. Here was a man who was afraid of John. Listen, he was afraid of John's righteousness. He was also afraid of his wife's unrighteousness. No personal conviction, just a bad mix of fear and power. Meanwhile, Herod's wife, her name was Herodias. She had no patience for John's moral stand. She wanted him dead, and she looked for her moment. And just to make sure we're not doubting how sick these people were, she got that moment at a dinner. Herod's throwing a banquet for himself, and she sent her daughter, her young daughter in there, to dance an erotic dance before Herod and his guests. What kind of mama does that? You can see Herod, can't you? Drunk literally drunk, but drunk on power and sex and the attention of his own guests. So he shows off by making a very foolish and very public promise to this girl. Anything you want to the half of my kingdom is yours. Herodias seized the moment and told this little girl to ask for the 
instead of John the Baptist, this girl, who should have been asking for a pony, or at least for better pants, goes back in there and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And there was Herod, caught between pride and sin, power and fear. He was just caught. So John was beheaded. And now Herod was without his Jiminy Cricket, <laughs> you know? No external hard drive, nothing to stop him when Jesus would eventually come before him and stand trial. So Herod would only, from that moment, grow more and more hungry for power and clueless and hard-hearted, participating in the death of Jesus and really making the persecution of the early church a popular thing. Herod. Eventually, as it always does for people who are hungry for power, it would catch up with him. Herod would end up banished to some far corner of the Roman Empire, first to France, then to Spain, having lost out on his big dream of becoming a real king. So Herod's life lessons are obvious. But, ultimately, Mark is not telling us a story about Herod. Mark is telling us a story about the kingdom of God using John the Baptist as his visual aid. To get the whole lesson, we have to go back and look at the neighborhood of this story in Mark chapter 6. So if you're in Mark 6, look back up to verse 1. The chapter begins with Jesus being doubted in his own hometown. He's teaching in the synagogue, and nobody trusts it. Wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus? I mean, he's the son. He's a carpenter, right? The son of Mary and Joseph. Not the brightest bulbs in the box. Are we sure? And their doubt shuts down the miracles in that town. Don't miss that point. What you do, how you act, can shut the whole thing down. That's what the story says. It says he couldn't do any miracles there except for healing a few sick people because the spiritual climate was so unfaithful. Look at verse 6. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. That's where chapter 6 begins. And then there is this story I've just told you of John the Baptist, verse 14, nestled in between some paragraphs just before it and a paragraph just after it about Jesus teaching his followers how to cast out demons, cure diseases, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. This happens on either side of the story of John's death. So, listen, while John dies, all this spiritual fruit is bursting out all around him. Followers of Jesus being sent out, people coming from everywhere, demons being cast out, people getting healed. The disciples hardly have a chance to eat. They're so busy. Don't miss this. John dies, but all around him is all this spiritual life and activity and fruitfulness springing up everywhere. It's like the in-breaking kingdom. Reminds me of that thing Jesus said one time when he says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. John dies, but the kingdom keeps growing. Come on. 
So in the middle of a dark thing, can God produce much fruit? And somehow, 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 does your faith matter in that equation? Next thing in Mark 6. So you've got Jesus in his hometown. You've got Jesus sending his followers out. You've got the story of John the Baptist. You've got Jesus seeing his followers worn out. They're so busy. And then the next thing is the feeding of the 5,000. You know that miracle story. This miraculous feeding of 5,000 people using Five loaves and two fish. They make sure you get it, that this is this much lunch for this much people. And it's like a visual aid for what we just saw all around the story of John's death. Thousands of hungry people, a few loaves and fish are broken, like the body of Christ. And what is produced feeds thousands. So, At the end of the chapter, after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are out on the lake, and they are rowing against a heavy wind. This is not the same as the story of them in the storm, scared to death. They're just rowing against a heavy wind in the dark. Don't neglect to see that it's just before dawn. And Jesus comes walking toward them on the water, and they are scared to death, terrified. And Jesus says to them, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. And Mark says it just this way. Look at verse 51, 52. Mark says it just this way. It's a huge line, so easy to miss. So listen, they were completely amazed for, read it together, they had not understood about the loaves. They were amazed because they had not understood about the loaves. We know that's not a throwaway line because Jesus says it in verse 6. He was amazed by their lack of faith. And Mark brings it up three more times in chapter 8. He'll show how frustrating it is to be the savior of clueless people. He will say, do you still not see or understand? Jesus will say, and then he'll, don't you remember? Jesus will ask again a third time, do you still not understand? What were they missing? Or let me ask it this way. What are we missing? While people in Nigeria wake up every day prepared to die, while people in India wait in line for food they won't get only because they follow Jesus, while churches sit mostly empty across our country, and while people make choices right now about whether or not they will ever go back to Jesus. What are we missing? What is it we need to understand about the kingdom of God? What is John the Baptist have to teach us about making sure that our lives point to Jesus and about having courage to stand and keep standing for truth. What does God want us to see right now so we are prepared for the next great move of God? So 
way Mark asks the question, according to Jesus, is this. What are you not getting about the loaves? What are you not getting? Do you understand the incredible prophetic power of John's life and what it teaches us about the enduring nature, the miraculous nature, the powerful nature of the kingdom of God? Friends, John's whole life was designed to point to Jesus. So the question is, where's yours? Last week, our staff team had an all-day retreat. And as part of that retreat, one of the things we did was to make a timeline of all that happened in 2020. If you haven't done this for yourself, if you've not been keeping any kind of journal or making any kind of notes, now would be a great time to reflect. Just take a piece of paper, you know, draw a line across it, January, February, March, April, May, June, all the way through, and begin to write the big events of each month. You know, for when we, when we wrote it, we, you know, we, this is when, this is the month, March, when churches closed. This May was when we went back to the office. June was when we came back to in-person worship. We just kind of went through the year marking these events in the life of the world and in the life around us. And then we marked our own personal stuff. We marked our high points and our low points. My low point was March and April, two months I spent entirely in a fetal position. <laughs> Christmas, this Christmas season was my high point, which is not usually the case for me. But I'm a pastor. I just loved Christmas, especially the week after Christmas when I felt kind of a felt the power of the Holy Spirit for that whole season. We look for threads as we wrote all this out on a timeline. I encourage you to do the same thing. So you don't miss, you know, the lesson. We, we noticed our life events. And one of my big joys, one of my big takeaways, watching that whole year happen, one of my big takeaways was recognizing the joy I found in watching others on our staff team flourish in their new positions. God opened several doors in 2020 for shifts in the responsibilities of our staff team, and we're, we're still learning and, and adjusting to our new roles, but it was really beautiful to watch uh, people who were weary, who had poured out, poured out, poured out, actually get new life. That was a blessing to me. I watched our vision team also shift into new leadership, and that was a beautiful thing to watch for me. We, we talked about, you know, getting the right people in the right seats on the bus and how this is kind of one of the hidden blessings of COVID for us. We talked about concrete steps we can take this year to get one more mile down the road toward bringing the right people to our platform and to our leadership table so that everything we do, everything points to Jesus and his in-breaking kingdom as it is pictured for us in Revelation 7-9, the verse on which this church was born. After this I looked, and there before me was every nation, tribe, language, and people standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. What do we need to do? personally and corporately to make sure that that vision of the kingdom is reflected here. 
So I wonder about you. I mean, I wonder if this exercise might help you to consider what needs to stay in your past as the world writes itself. What pre-COVID things need to stay right on back in pre-COVID? What needs to come forward? What needs to be birthed? This moment provides us with such a great opportunity to reposition so that more and more of us is pointed toward more and more of Jesus. That's one lesson that I learned from John's life. His whole life was pointed toward Jesus, even in stress-ridden times. And John's courage teaches us that discipleship costs, but forgetting costs more. Discipleship does, it's costly, but forgetting costs more. I really love the way Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, hard hearts spring up in the places where we bury our forgotten mercies. You should write that down. Hard hearts spring up in the places where we bury our forgotten mercies. Do you remember Jesus said to his followers, who didn't understand about the loaves, he said it's because their hearts were hard. And these weren't bad people. These were the followers of Jesus. They just, they, they could forget really fast. Makes me feel a little better about myself, actually, because I can forget. I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, except I had the same exact thing for breakfast every day. It tells me forgetting can be dangerous. When we forget God's mercies, everything suffers. Spurgeon says this, that the miracle of the loaves, it has an equivalent in our own personal history. And we suffer when we forget how God has moved for us personally. So as you're making your timeline and remembering your highs and lows from 2020, ask yourself, what has God brought you through? What needs has he supplied? What miracle has he worked? And take that on back through your life and remember. Because here's the thing. If you let yourself forget the mercies of God, you may find yourself making choices for your life moving forward that don't include him. I can tell you that on the other side of this pandemic, churches will be smaller. Every prognosticator says the same thing. Churches will be smaller on the other side of this pandemic. And often when prognosticators say it, they say, but that's, that's a good thing because we will have gotten rid of the consumer Christians. But I'm going to tell you, I don't know that's so much of a good thing. The Christian community in the United States could easily look more and more like a minority. And one day we could be the ones denied food. One day we could be the ones tapped on because we claim Jesus as our Savior. Don't assume it has nothing to do with you and your choices. Every, every single uh, empire and country and, and nation that has fallen has fallen on the strength of individuals making the choice not to stand courageously for Jesus. 
I've said this before, and I say it gently, and I, I say, I, I want to say to you in the room first, I want to say to you who are here, I want to thank you, especially for those of you who have come and made this a, a thing. Thank you. And it's got to feel hard, I want to say. It's got to feel hard. A year ago, the room was full. Do you remember? And it's got to feel like a little bit of a letdown when you come in and you sit way away from everybody else. That's got to feel hard. I want to tell you, you are like the seed being planted in the ground. And your witness matters. Your witness matters. not been in Lutheran worship, you've not been in a group, I've said this before, you've been discipled, just not by the church. You've been discipled by public opinion, and you've been discipled by uh, personal trauma, and you've been discipled by your political party. What values does that shift inside of you? And what values have gone dormant that could threaten to make your heart Discipleship costs, and I'm going to tell you, forgetting costs more. Talk to anybody living in a post-Christian culture. And we are, but my goodness, we have it all in common. Hard hearts spring up in places where we bury our forgotten mercies. We all need to prepare for returning from COVID and fall. What do you need to do spiritually in order to restore the holy rhythms? And I'll come back to a statement I made in the beginning. The decisions that you made early on, those don't necessarily need to govern the decisions you make today. You have a track record. You have history. You have an understanding of how things work. How will you prepare to return from spiritualism? One more thought from the story of John's death at the hands of Herod. N.T. Wright says this, the kingdoms of this, this is where the hope comes. Are you ready for a little hope? <laughs> the kingdoms of this world will eventually become the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of this world, listen, we can, we can talk doomsday predictions all day long. We may pass away. John the Baptist, he died for his beliefs. But the kingdoms sprang up all around him, right? In Mark's gospel, we watched John died while the world began to burst forth with the fruit of Jesus' followers, anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We learn from that that some things may have to die or take a back seat, but other things will come forward because here's the thing, friends, the kingdom of God grows. It grows. It has a bad case of the can't help it. It has to grow. It can't not grow. Which means that if something is the plan of God, if it is a God thing, it will grow. Not on my strength or power, but on God's. Does that help you like it helps me? We've not seen our last good day. If this is of God, it will grow. It also means that if God's not in it, it will not grow. Which is a bit of a challenge. If I have something in my life that's been stuck in a holding pattern for a while, I may need to 
look at that and ask a couple of important questions. So as you're doing your timeline and you see this is a place I've kind of, I find myself in this habit that I have, you know, now it's a, now it's a habit. I've been doing this for a while now. Am I seeing kingdom fruit from this? And if not, I may need to ask myself a couple of questions. Is this a place where God has me waiting? Or is this a place where God is waiting on me? You might want to write those questions down as you make your own timeline, as you have your own personal reflection. Is this a place where God has me waiting? Or is this a place where I have God waiting? In other words... Is this thing in my life, this pattern I keep repeating, or this thing I keep making excuses for so I don't have to make a change, this non-decision decision I keep inflicting on myself, is this a place where God has me waiting, or is God waiting on me? Great questions to ask as we position ourselves for the next great move of God, because the kingdom of God grows, and today, friends, we are one day closer to the next great move of God than we were yesterday. Come on. I absolutely adore my son-in-law, Pierce, and he and I do this little podcast, and so last week we started season three of our podcast. One of the things we did, his hidden blessing of COVID, he started the podcast, and uh, we, we just used that time to talk to each other, and I, I made this statement to him during that podcast that the kingdom of God grows, and we are one day closer today to the next day, great move of God. And after we got off, he said, do you really believe that? Because when I look around me, I see, you know, everything looks like it's gone to hell in a handbasket right now. And this is one of the great advantages of being 25 years older, because I know things can look terrible and get better. I have enough history behind me to know things can look really bad in the moment. But yet our faith stands. Here's what I do know. History teaches us. History teaches us that there will be another revival. There will be another great awakening. So how will you prepare for that day? Do you have some getting ready to do? You need to take some time to reflect on the year behind so you can toss what bears no fruit and put yourself in line with the next great move of God. Do you need to revise the way you're making decisions in this season so that your decisions reflect a deep, deep personal commitment to the kingdom of God? You know, we owe a lot to Mark for telling the story of John's death in just that way, surrounded by kingdom fruit, by people casting out demons, curing diseases, proclaiming the kingdom, and healing the sick. To show us that even when things are rough, the kingdom never stops coming. So if you learn nothing else from the life of John this month, learn this. This kingdom advancing work is the work of a warrior. We fight for the souls of people, and we fight for the values of Jesus, and we fight for the body of Christ on earth. We fight for the gospel. We don't sit passively by and hope for the best or assume it will happen without us. We have been given a trust, and friends, Christ is counting on us. I want to make very clear 
how Jesus and Mark define the fighting. They define it in this way. Stand up for the holiness of God. But be unafraid when someone comes at you violently. You cast out demons, cure diseases, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. That's how you fight for the kingdom of God. That's how you do it. And to cast out demons, to, to boldly, confidently, take power and authority to lay hands on people, to pray for people over the phone, to pray for people by Zoom, to pray for people when you see them falling apart. That takes faith. Jesus was amazed because they did not have faith. Lord, I want to pray for my friends in the house and for my friends online as I pray together for the body of Christ. Lord, I am praying that you would prepare us. Prepare us. Make the way straight. Prepare us through repentance. Prepare us through reflection. Prepare us through the remembrance so our hearts don't grow hard. God, will you give us the grace to get ready for the next great move of God? And will you make us part of it? so in love with the values of Christ, so committed to this work of kingdom advancement. And for people to look at us and say, you know what, that looks like John the Baptist, that looks like Jesus, that, that looks like the kingdom right there. That's my prayer for you. That when people look at me, that when people look at my friends in this room, when people look at Mosaic, see what we do, they would say, that looks like Jesus. That looks like Jesus. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.